The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to continue our study this morning in John chapter 12, which... uh, lays out the events and the teachings of the last week of Yeshua's life. Now in this chapter, we've seen Mary's extravagant worship of Yeshua in which she performed a prophetic or symbolic action in in literally preparing the Lord, anointing the Lord for His burial. Then we saw Yeshua's entry into Jerusalem, which I call the tragic entry, and it's tragic because it, it was the judgment of Jerusalem. They rejected their king, They wanted a king, but he wasn't the king they wanted. And they hail him as king one day as he rides into Jerusalem, and a few days later, they're crying out, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar, bringing their judgment on them. Then we saw that some Greeks came to seeking Yeshua. They wanted to see him, which caused him to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the hour had come, it was the hour of His death, the hour of His crucifixion. He's going to be glorified through dying, a sacrificial death. And last week we looked at Yeshua's statement in verse 32 where He says, And when I, I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Now, a very significant text. The verb here, hupsao, lifted up, usually means to exalt someone. And as usual, Lazarus wants us to see a double meaning here. It can refer either figuratively to exaltation or literally to putting someone up on a tree or on a cross. And here, it's both. Yeshua's being lifted up on the cross resulted in His being exalted as Savior of the world. So lifted up speaks of His death. It speaks of His resurrection and ascension. Paul put it this way. In Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's his being lifted up on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So because he was put on the cross, because he died, God highly exalted him. Now the words highly exalted here are from the Greek word, Huper upsao, which is from hupsao, lifted up, and huper, which means above or beyond. So, huper upsao means to elevate to a surpassing position, to exalt beyond all others, to exalt to the highest maximum majesty. This particular exaltation is so grand that this Greek word is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. This is it, the only place to use it. This is a, an exaltation above all exaltations. He humbled himself, God exalted him. That's a principle we see all through Scripture. Now, he said that if he's lifted up, he's going to draw people to himself. I think we're all familiar with the word draw here, helkuo. We've gone over this many times. It means to draw by irresistible superiority. It's not a wooing, it's not a calling, it's a dragging. All right? If you don't like that, I'm sorry, I didn't invent it. I'm just telling you what it says, okay? When Yeshua is crucified, When He is exalted, He will draw all people, that's Jews and Gentiles, to Himself 
as their Savior and Lord. Because He's lifted up, the Greeks are going to see Him. So Yeshua had concluded His prediction of His coming death in John 12.36 with a passionate appeal to the Jewish crowd to believe in the light. While they had the light. And then the final part of verse 36 states that Yeshua departed and He hid Himself. So this is a dramatic illustration of the theme of the passing of the light. The light has departed from the people of Jerusalem. He tells them, believe in the light while you have the light. And then He disappears. Because Jerusalem, the light is going out. They rejected their king. Now that brings us to our text for today. And we're going to look at verses 37 through 43, mostly. We're not going to quite get through all of 43, or we're not going to get to 43. I tried to finish this chapter today, but unless you want to pack a lunch, we're not going to be able to do that, okay? There's just some stuff in here we really need to talk about. But verses 12, 37 through 43, is an explanation of Israel's unbelief. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, Yeshua began His ministry with this announcement. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. And now the public ministry of Yeshua ends with this statement. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. Now, so the questions often ask, well, if Yeshua is in fact the Jewish Messiah, if He really has come from God, then why do the Jews, who are God's chosen people, reject Him? I mean, how can what Yeshua is teaching be true if Israel doesn't believe it? Well, the reason that Israel is not accepting the Gospel is because they are under a curse. Yahweh warned Israel, That she would be cursed, she would be driven out of the land, she would be scattered among the nations of the earth if she did not obey Him. And Israel continually disobeyed and went after other gods. Which is just hard to believe when you think of all their God has done for them and all they've seen their God do that they would follow after other gods. He says they still did not believe in Him. The Jewish crowd who heard Yeshua teach, I mean, he'd been in the midst of them for three years. The crowd who saw him heal the lame man. The crowd who saw him give sight to the blind. The crowd who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead after four days in the tomb. That same crowd heard the voice of God speaking to His Son, and they didn't believe. Yeshua prays, And that heaven thunders, and they're like, no, we don't believe it. What does Lazarus tell us? And we've looked at this many times. What's the purpose of these signs in this book? What's his purpose? To bring us to faith, right? He says the theme verse here, 2031, these, the these here refers to the verse, the verse 30, which talks about the signs. These, these signs are written. There's seven of them he has put in this gospel. These signs are written so that you may believe. That's why I'm telling you these signs. You know, his readers are after the fact, okay? Yeshua's gone, so he's writing to his readers. And these signs, I'm right. But these people in Yeshua's day, they were there when these signs were happening. They watched them happen. So you will believe 
Believe what? That Yeshua is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing, here's what happens when you believe, you may have life in His name. Lazarus lined up miracle after miracle, seven of them. There was a lot more he could have put in, but he uses seven. That's the number of perfection, completion. And he gives us a lot of interpretation after these miracles. And all designed to convince the Jews to believe in Yeshua. That's why he begins by saying, though he had done so many signs. He'd done so many signs before them. They still did not believe. Now, the Greek construction of the verb done here in verse 37 indicates that Lazarus saw continuing results flowing out of those miracles. In other words, it's not that signs are done in past. They're done with continuing results. What's a continuing result? Lazarus is walking around (laughs) as living proof. I was dead for four days. Now I'm walking around alive. That's, That's pretty strong proof, people. And the Scriptures tell us people were going there just to see him. That's strong proof of Yeshua's power raised from the dead. And it says, they still did not believe. And the verb believe here is constructed in such a way as to communicate that the Jews kept on and kept on in unbelief. The picture is one of constant refusal to believe. They just would not believe. No matter what happened, they wouldn't believe. Now we have seen that the whole theme of belief is central to Lazarus' purpose. That's why he wrote this book, so people would believe. Yet the reality was most of the Jews who heard and saw Yeshua did not put their trust in Him. So as Lazarus summarizes Christ's three years of public ministry, he records the sad fact that the overwhelming majority did not believe in Yeshua, though He had done so many signs before them. They still did not believe. Now here's what we have to understand. The unbelief of Israel is not a failure on the part of God. Paul deals with this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. All right? The unbelief of Israel was in fact the plan of God. You say their unbelief was God's plan? That's right. God planned that Israel would reject their Savior and that they would crucify Him. And guess what? By crucifying Him, He became the Savior of the world. It's all part of God's plan. It was foretold by prophecy in the Tanakh. And then he quotes, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. They didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? So Isaiah's prophecy would be fulfilled. See, Isaiah talked about them. He talked about the fact that they wouldn't believe. We see here, That the first cause for rejection, the reason Israel rejected their Savior was it was predicted. God had predicted this. It fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. The writings of the prophet Isaiah are quoted in the Gospels more than any other Old Covenant prophet. Over 25 different verses from Isaiah are quoted by the writers of the Gospels, including 14 verses as direct quotes of Yeshua. Yeshua keeps quoting this. The quoted passages come from all the different sections of Isaiah, as these two passages we'll see in our text illustrate. Now, Lazarus chose these passages from Isaiah because this prophet's mission in the 8th century B.C. parallels 
Yeshua's mission to God's covenant people in the first century. All right? Isaiah, like Yeshua, confronted a, a rebellious generation whose persistent unbelief called down the covenant judgment of Yahweh, which resulted in the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. Now, Judah's rejection of Yeshua, the Messiah, also will result in Yahweh's covenant judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, verse 38 quotes Isaiah 53.1, verbatim from the Greek translation of the Tanakh. He's quoting from the Septuagint here, word for word. And Isaiah 53 is a description of the suffering servant, who we know is Yeshua. Now, Israel looked at this differently. Israel looked at the suffering servant as Israel, the nation. So they read that stuff and they said, well, it's talking about us. You know, so therefore they couldn't, they didn't see the Messiah in this. The two verses that follow the verse that Lazarus quotes, let's look at those first, go like this. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the point is that Isaiah prophesied that the suffering servant would be rejected. Israel would not believe on him, which is why Lazarus quotes verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Now, though the New Testament writers rarely use Isaiah 53.1, it fits perfectly in what Lazarus' point is trying to make here. First of all, he's using the word believe here, and that's Lazarus' whole thing about belief. All right? Extremely important to him. Another advantage is Isaiah 53.1 is that the parallelism points both to Yeshua's words and his signs. It says, who has believed what they heard from us, That's the spoken word. That's the teaching of Yeshua. He's taught for three years, detailed arguments. Who's believed that? The Jews rejected it. And also he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now the arm of the Lord here refers to His power. The signs. The miracles. You would think that everyone who saw those mighty signs would believe. It's not like a magician's trick. I mean, they saw some pretty incredible things. But Lazarus says here that the arm of the Lord has to be revealed. And the word revealed in Isaiah is the Hebrew word galah, which means to denude or to reveal. The Greek word nartex is apocalypto, which means to take off the cover to disclose. So it's saying that if Yahweh doesn't open people's eyes, they're not going to see Yeshua's miracles authenticating Him as God's Messiah. They'll see it and they're like, that's no big deal. Because they haven't been revealed. So why do some people believe in Yeshua and some won't? What separates mankind? Some people smarter than others? Some people got a better environment? Someone presented the gospel a little clearer. What makes the difference? Well, the difference here, the answer is right there in the text. It says it has to be revealed. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
No one can truly understand that Yeshua is the Lord. No one can respond to the message and the teaching of the gospel. Nobody can see the significance of the mighty signs unless they are revealed to them by Yahweh. In other words, they have to have a new birth. They must be given life. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. He cannot know them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. Now, so they saw all these signs. They saw all these miracles, but God didn't open their eyes. He didn't reveal to them that it was His work. And this unbelief of the Jews in the midst of the miraculous signs isn't something new for Israel, okay? They're just like the ancient Israelites. In Moses' last public address, committing the children of Israel to the Sinai Covenant, he charges the people as a whole with unbelief despite the signs and the wonders that God had shown them. Let's back up a little bit to Deuteronomy. Look what Moses has to say here to the Israelites. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. And think about what they saw. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, those great wonders. But to this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now think of everything. They, I mean, first of all, the plagues. And, and God separates the Israelites from the Egyptians and there the plagues coming on the Egyptians and the Israelites are free. All those plagues. And then the parting of the Red Sea. Can you imagine walking through there? I mean, I probably would be stuck in the middle because I'm just admiring, you know, this is incredible. You know, and they're like, hurry up, get through, we've got to shut this thing down. You know, and they get on the other side, then the thing collapses and kills all of Pharaoh's army. The, the miraculous provision in the desert, water coming out of a rock, manna, all this stuff, they didn't believe it. Why? The text tells us. What's it say? Yahweh has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Again, it's supernatural. Unless God opens your eyes, you don't see it if it's right in front of you. Now, it's interesting that Moses called the people who rejected Yahweh a perverse and wicked generation in Deuteronomy 32. And Peter used those same words to condemn the first century generation in Acts 2.40. You're a perverse generation. Now, the dozen or so overtones of Isaiah 52 through 53.12 found in John 12, I think show us that Lazarus had this servant song in mind when he composed this chapter. I mean, he just keeps using these different allusions. Really, there's a dozen of them in chapter 12 from Isaiah. This is on his mind as he's writing this because Yeshua is the suffering servant. He says, therefore, they could not believe. Why couldn't they believe? Because Yahweh hadn't revealed Himself to them. He had not given them an understanding heart. He had determined to leave them in their blindness and the hardness of their sin. He denied His saving grace to them. Which is the only thing that enables anybody to believe. The grace of God. And he didn't give it to them. 
Now the Greek text literally says, for this reason they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. I think we're probably familiar with that text. This is verse 10. But I want to read the whole chapter just so we get the context of what's going on here in verse 10. So let's back up to verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and His train of His robe filled the temple. Uzziah had been a good king for Israel. He was a military genius. He had protected Israel. He was a great warrior king. He'd ruled for about 40 years. And at this time, Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian general, was on the move there against Israel. And now they just lost their leader, their military leader. So it's a time of, you know, people are like, wow, what do we do now? You know, how do we fight this guy off? Well, so Isaiah has this vision. And look who's on the throne. So God's basically saying, hey, I know Uzziah's gone, but that's okay because I'm still running things. All right, I'm on the throne. I'm ruling. And boy, that's something we need to remember, people. You know, life gets difficult. and You're like, oh man, what's happening? God, I'm still on here. I got it under control. You know, we need this kind of a vision, I guess, to, to see that He's still on the throne. To see that our faith is still to be placed in Him. Verse 2 says, Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is a throne room vision. Isaiah is transported to the throne room of God. This is the, he's in with a divine council. Yahweh's sitting on the throne. Now, we see very similar language to this in 2 Chronicles 18. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. Now listen to what he says. I saw Yahweh sitting on His throne. Exactly what Isaiah says. And all the hosts of heaven standing on His right hand and on His left. These are other gods. These are divine beings. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. In other words, all these divine beings are saying, Hey, let's do this. And, hey, let's do that. You know, here's how we're going to do it. It's a divine council scene. They're in the throne room with Yahweh and his hosts. He goes on, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. And this is what happens when you're in the presence of God. You know, He's just crumbling before Him. So Isaiah is brought into the divine council, into the presence of Yahweh, and he receives his commission. The one... Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? 
Who's the us there? People say, what's well, the Trinity? It's the divine council what it is. All right? That he's in the divine council meeting and they're saying we need a representative who will do this. He said, here am I, send me. And they said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. In other words, they're going to see this stuff, they're just not going to get it. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. Basically telling Isaiah, Go and preach this people, they're not going to listen. And Yahweh removed peoples far away, and their forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, in other words, there's going to be a remnant, It will be burned again like a terebinth and an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. So in verse 10, which is the verse he quotes, he said, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes lest they see. In other words, he's quoting here, verse 10 in in 40 of chapter 12, this verse Verse 10 is quoted five times in the New Testament as a description of the Jewish people in the first century. Yeshua cited this text in Matthew chapter 13 and said it pertained to the people of His day. Paul referred to this text in Acts chapter 28. Remember in 28, he's in Rome, he's in prison, he calls for the Jewish leaders, he shares the Gospel, they don't listen, and he quotes this verse. You guys are blind. And now, here Lazarus unites with Paul and Yeshua in applying this text to the people of his day. The unbelief of Israel, what they're telling us, is God's plan. He willed to make their unbelief the means by which He would provide salvation to the world. The reaction of the Jews to Yeshua in rejecting Him led to the cross that produced salvation. It's all part of God's plan. God's not up there scrambling saying, oh my word, they won't trust me, what will I do now? This is all part of the plan of God. Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. Now, he, Isaiah, saw His glory and spoke of Him. The Him here can hardly refer to Yahweh. But it's a reference to Yeshua. So we learn here for the first time that the vision of God in Isaiah 6 was none other than Christ Himself. What Isaiah saw was Yeshua. This is referring to that vision in chapter 6. This is an affirmation that Yeshua is God. For it's clearly God who He sees sitting on that throne. And here the text tells us the glory He saw was the glory of Yeshua. That's who's sitting on the throne. And people say, I don't think Yeshua's God. You're not too familiar with the Bible. Because it is everywhere. Because it's important. Because Yeshua said, unless you believe that I am He, no He, just unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Because He's God. And this is similar to the claim that Yeshua made of Moses in chapter 5 of John when He said, it was about Me that He was writing. 
And about Abraham in chapter 8 when he said that your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. All through the Tanakh we see the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ revealed Himself. You know, Paul tells us He was the rock that Israel followed. This is what the Jews would call the second Yahweh. The second power in heaven. See, they understood that this was the visible manifestation of God. It was Yeshua. So if you want to know the glory, if you want to know the moral beauty of the Father, read the Gospels. And behold the person of Yeshua because He is the radiance of the glory of God. We just have to be, that's what He says over and over. If you've seen Me, you see the Father. So if you want to know what God's like, just study the Gospels and see what Yeshua has to say. Now, just as in the very beginning of this Gospel, the sweeping indictment of 1, 10, and 11 are followed by the exceptions of 12 and 13. In chapter 11, it says, though He came to His own, they didn't receive Him. But verse 12 says, but as many as did receive Him, to them gave the power to become the sons of God. So it's cool, like they didn't believe, but there's an exception, there's some people who believe. We see that same thing here in our text. 12, 37-41 is followed. It's like they're blinded, they don't get it, they won't believe. It's followed by these verses. Nevertheless, you get a contrast here, people. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So, all of a sudden, you know, we got all this blindness, we got all this unbelief, and then he said, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him. Now, let me ask you a question here. I'm calling for critical thinking here, okay? What does he mean when he says the authorities believed in Him? What do you think he means? Now, right now, you should be looking at me like I'm stupid, okay? What, what do you mean? What does he mean? He means what he says, right? I mean, he said they became believers. Isn't that what your text says? Look at your Bible. Okay, I haven't found one text that says something different. The authorities believed in him. So, I'm just dumb enough to think the authorities believed in him. Cool. But, not everybody believes that. Okay? Not everybody believes it. Let me give you a few quotes. John Gill, you've heard of John Gill? Okay, Reformed theologian, says this, Though they did not believe in Him, he's talking about the text we just read, they did not believe in in a spiritual and a saving manner as their Redeemer and Savior, only in their minds. Being convinced by His miracles gave an assent unto Him as the promised Messiah. So the text says they believed, and Gill says they didn't believe in a spiritual and saving man. Well, what is Lazarus trying to tell us then? John MacArthur writes this Many of the rulers believed in him. Yep. But the condition of their heart was not sufficient to demonstrate a true saving faith. Now we know there was a lot of superficial believers. Again, that's not what the text says. And here's the thing, people. You know, you're trying to study the Bible and you're reading some of these guys. I mean, MacArthur's got a huge following. He's got all these commentaries, all this stuff. And you're reading your MacArthur says, well, you know, the Bible says this, but John says this, so I'm going with John. Mm, not a good idea. 
Okay? See, their faith wasn't sufficient to demonstrate a true saving faith. You don't want to know what demonstrates faith? Belief. That's dem- When you have faith, you demonstrate it. Well, MacArthur goes on to say, they are the most religious people in the nation. Talking about the authorities. Highly religious. Believing in Yeshua. They are nonetheless doomed. Because theirs is a false faith. How did he get that? How did he know? The word, their belief, pastuo. It's the same word Lazarus uses through the whole book. But see, these commentators sometimes say, well, it doesn't mean what it says. Alright? Stephen J. Cole writes this. I would contend that while these rulers later may have come to saving faith, at this point, John is describing men who are not yet saved. Well, John, why do you call them believers then? Because you're confusing me. They're not saved, but you say they're saved. Notice how Lazarus describes these men who were not saved. He says they believed in him. That's a funny way to describe non-believers, isn't it? I mean, I guess maybe they're trying to confuse. Bob Udley writes this. In John, belief has levels. All do not attain salvation. Now that's troubling because I know I believe, but I don't know if I believe at the right level. How do I get to that level? Who determines this? Somebody else. They're looking at you and saying, nope, sorry, you didn't get it. Bob goes on to say, John's gospel uses belief, pistuo, in several senses. No, it doesn't. It does not. There's no way you can prove that. From initial attraction. In other words, he's saying they believed in him, but it means they just had like this initial attraction. That guy's pretty cool. Look what he's doing. To emotional response. In other words, just, oh, I like this guy. To true saving faith. So you got all these different meanings in one word. And how do you unpack which one's which? It's up to you, I guess. All right? Here, you got it. you're going to love this quote, all right? This is from Mark Copeland. He's the author of the Executable Outlines, and he says this. There are some who teach that as long as one believes in Jesus, they will be saved. Yeah. You know who teaches that? Yeshua, Paul, James, Peter. And they all teach that. There are some who teach that. That's right. Wow, what a great... <laughs> that salvation is by faith alone. But there is such a thing as an unsaved believer. People, I submit to you, words have no meaning whatsoever. Because if you come up with stuff like this, then you, you, it's just nonsense. The words don't even mean anything. I said this, but that's not what I meant. I meant the opposite. I mean, it gets absolutely ridiculous. And the sad thing is here, people, listen, this is not funny at all. Because what it does, it, quest, it causes believers to question whether they're truly saved. I believed in Christ, but I might not be saved because, well, I'm not doing this and doing that and do, you know, and they got all this doing stuff. And so people are doubting. They have no confidence in their assurance. And if you go through life doubting that you're even a Christian, what is your motivation for living for the Lord? Why would I, I don't even really think I'm His. 
Mark goes on to say, there were some who believed in Jesus, but were not saved. And he quotes our text. Let no one think that just because they believe in Jesus, they have a free ticket into heaven. It's funny that the Bible says that all over the place, but we're, you know, that men have a different idea. This is what's called religion, and men have put onto the gospel all kinds of stipulations to control people for whatever reason. Now, before we dig into this, we're going we're gonna to dig into this text because we want to understand what's he really saying here? Are these guys right? I mean, are they justified at all in these things they're saying? I want to remind you of a quote that I've shared with you many times, but this quote is powerful. And if you get it, it's going to change your Bible study. This is by J.I. Packer. Packer says this, We do not start our Christian lives by working out our faith for ourselves. You understand, when you come to the Bible, if you've never touched the Bible, you've got a lot of preconceived ideas on what this Bible says. Okay? And that's what he's saying. He says, it is mediated to us by Christian tradition. Even people who've never set foot in the church and never touched the Bible believe certain things because they've heard it. They saw it in a movie or whatever. He says, in the form of sermons, books, and established patterns of church life and fellowship. We read our Bibles in light of what we have learned from these sources. And see, you read someone like MacArthur, you read someone like these guys, and then you read your Bible in light, well, it says they believe, but no, they didn't. We approach Scripture with minds already formed. People, this is all of us. Every one of us. We come to the Bible, we have certain beliefs, we have certain understandings, and we go to the text, and too often we take our beliefs and we jam them on the text. That's called eisegesis. It's adding things to the text that aren't there. Our goal should be exegesis, drawing out what is there. But sometimes what's there confronts what we already believe. So you either keep your beliefs or you believe the Bible. You know, you got to make a choice here. All right? But our minds are already formed. We've got to understand this. He says, by the mass of accepted opinions and viewpoints with which we have come in contact in both the church and the world, it's easy to be unaware that it has happened. It is hard even to begin to realize how profoundly tradition in this sense has molded us. In other words, we don't even understand how deep we've been affected by this. But we are forbidden to become enslaved to human tradition. We're forbidden, he says. We may never assume the complete rightness of our own established ways of thought and practice. And excuse ourselves the duty of testing and reforming them by the Scriptures. In other words, don't assume you're right. Get in the Scriptures, examine the text, and see what it says. We have to test everything we believe by the text. And listen, most people who have believe anything have a verse to go with it. Okay? But what we have to do is find out, is that verse in context? Is that what that verse means? The beliefs you hold have to come out of Scripture. And there's a difference between what people say the Bible says and what it actually says. But we've got to get in and find out. Because most people will have beliefs about the Bible that they heard from somebody else. They didn't get it from the Bible. They didn't get it from the text. 
I was talking to a man yesterday. I was at a garage and there was, you know, we got in this conversation and this guy was just going off. Oh, I believe this. I believe this. And I believe this born again stuff is a bunch of nonsense. The Bible doesn't talk about blood. And he, and I like stopped for a second. I said, uh, have you read the Bible? He said, not really. And I'm like, where are you getting your opinions about God from? I said, are you just making this stuff up? Cause I've read the book. I've seen stuff in there and it's not what you're saying. It's exactly opposite of what you're saying. And it's funny because he didn't get defensive at all. He was just like, okay, preacher, um, you know, I guess I, I said, you need to read it. You need to get your opinions from the book, out of the book, not from other people. But that's how most people are. They have beliefs about God. But where do they come from? You know, the Bereans were praised in Scripture for checking out Paul's teaching. Paul was an apostle. And they didn't believe what he said. They said, we're going to get in the Bible and see if this is true. We're going to check it out. I've, ta- I've told you before what R.B. Theme, he was nicknamed the Colonel. He was a Bible teacher. You know what he said about the Bereans? You remember? He said the Bereans were a bunch of jackasses. You know why he said that? He said, you got no business checking up on the preacher. Because he was a manipulative, controlling person who wanted his people to do whatever he said. And if you're checking up on him, you're going to find out he's not right all the time. So he said, you got no business checking. I'm like, what in the world? Again, how crazy are people? They follow stuff like that. (laughs) The Bereans were praised for checking out the Apostle Paul. Listen, even if everybody thinks something is true, that doesn't make it true. We've got to stick to the text. That's why we have to be reading the text. We have to be familiar enough with it to know when we hear something that's not right. So, in looking at Lazarus' words here, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Let's attempt to put our side, and this is not easy, our preconceived ideas. And let's simply see if we can let the text say what the text is saying. Now, let me ask you this. Do you view... These words here, many even of the authorities believed in him as part of the verbally inspired text of Scripture. You believe this is Scripture? Okay, well then, let's talk for a minute about inspiration. Make sure we're on the same page here, alright? Biblical inspiration may be defined as God's superintending of the human authors so that using their own individuals, personalities, their writing styles, their life, he composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. Now, we don't have the original autographs anymore. We just have copies. we got a lot of copies. So we compare the copies and we find out what he said. But God used these people. And it's not, you know, a lot of people think inspiration is mechanical dictation. You know what I mean by that? In other words, they sat down, they took the inkwell, and they just, their hand just went, and they're like, wow, that's cool, wow, that's cool, look what God's saying. No, these people were writing out of their life. This is what God had inspired them, He had motivated them. The Holy Spirit superintended of the writers, He used their life, their background, their experiences, all they had to put down in Scripture what He wanted them to say. 2 Peter put it this way in 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Man didn't make this stuff up, he's saying. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now the words carry along here has the idea, if you take a stick and you throw it in a stream, 
it's just borne along by that stream. The stream is carrying that thing. That's what these men, these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The personality of the authors can be seen in their works. But ultimately, it's a supernatural book that comes from God. It's the revelation of God Himself. These men put together what God wanted them to, using their personalities. Timothy, Paul put it this way to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What this is saying is is that God breathed out Scripture. He spoke it. It's the very breath of God. When men wrote Scriptures, the thing they wrote were what God wanted them to write. They put out the Word of God. The Westminster Confession means, this is what it means when it says the original text of the Bible was immediately inspired by God. Now, Paul tells us that all scriptures God breathed, and there's a sense in which all scripture is true. But here's the thing we have to distinguish between scripture, where the very words are themselves teaching divine truth, And the Scriptures where the words are correctly recorded as a true record of what was said, but what was said is not true. You understand what I'm saying? Do this. (laughs) Let me me try to explain this, alright? Let me show you what I mean. In the book of Job, we have words spoken by Job and his four friends. And it's necessary for us to consider which of the words are divine truth and which are simply accurate record of what happened. I mean, the words accurately present what was said, but without necessarily themselves being inspired truth. Uh, Job's so-called friend Eliphaz says this, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where can the upright cut off? Where were the upright cut off? You know, Eliphaz is basically telling Job, the innocent don't suffer. There's something wrong with you, Job. You must be guilty of something. Eliphaz is basically teaching the health-wealth gospel here. Hey, if you're innocent, you're not going to perish. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to go through all this stuff. Innocent, that doesn't happen to him. Eliphaz continues. He says, It is for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you. Is not your evil abundant? I mean, Job, you're just a rotten person. There is no end to your iniquities. Job, you're the worst person on earth. For you have enacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. I mean, this guy is just going... This is Job's so-called friend. Okay? You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty. That's a serious indictment, people. And the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelmed you. He's basically saying, Job, you're suffering because you are such a rotten person. If you were a good man, you wouldn't be in this situation. See, good people don't have problems. You know that, right? So is what Eliphaz is teaching here, is saying here, is this truth? No. It's not true at all. 
Notice what God says in Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright. This is God's opinion of Job. Now, who you want to believe? God or Eliphaz? See, Job's problems are not a result of sin. It's a trial of the Almighty. Now, notice what Yahweh says in the end of this book, 42.7. And Yahweh had spoken these words to Job. Yahweh said to Eliphaz, the Temanite. Now, he's talking to Eliphaz. My anger burns against you and your two friends. God says, I am ticked off at you guys. Why? What is he mad at them for? You have not spoken of me what is right. God must be mad at a lot of preachers. I am serious. You know, this, is, this verse is scary to me. God is angry because they're not telling the truth about him. And he doesn't like that. Because the truth about him is his glory. It's his character. It's his name. And they're lying about him. And how many people do that today? God is not happy. His anger burns against them. So they're telling what they said is recorded in the Bible because they said it. It's accurately recorded. But what they said is not truth. And so we have to, when we look at Scriptures, we've got to be discerning. We have to distinguish when the Scriptures are putting forth revealed truth and when they're telling us what people said without necessarily saying it's the truth. Another example of this would be and we could do a lot of these, Genesis 3, 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now the serpent's words are certainly Scripture. This is part of the inspired text. This is an accurate representation of what he said, but what he said is not true. So when considering divine truth, here's what we need to ask as discerning people. Who said this? What is the context of them saying this? What are the circumstances of them saying this? Is this cultural? Is this related to us? Is this apocalyptic language? Is this didactic? We've got to ask a lot. Of, you're saying, oh, it's getting too complicated. People, it's the Word of God. It's worthy of all our time and effort to find out what is being said is accurate. It's true. Now, with this in mind, this, let's take this to our text. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Him. Who said this? Lazarus, okay, he's the author. He's saying this. Is this text telling us what the authorities said? Nope. Is this telling us what others said about the authorities? Nope. These are God-breathed words recorded by Lazarus. This is divine truth. This is a didactic portion of Scripture, not parables, not apocalyptic. Lazarus simply telling us, You know, we had all these unbelievers. Nevertheless, this is really cool. Some of the authorities, many of the authorities, believed in Him. If there had been any hint when Lazarus wrote this that their faith was not genuine, he certainly would have worded this differently. I mean, I can't imagine, you know. I mean, the Bible's purpose is to teach us, not to confuse us. So Lazarus is speaking here from his own first-hand knowledge under the inspiration of the Spirit. His statement, therefore, should control our judgment. And he says, not that these authorities pretended to believe. You hear that all the time. Oh, they pretended. 
they acted, they thought. No! It says they believed. I think we should conclude then that they did in a true and a proper sense of the word believe because God would know better than anybody. Right? I mean, I, you and I have trouble saying that today. We look at someone, well, they're a believer. I'm not really sure. I don't know. I don't know their heart. But listen, God does. Right? Now, Lazarus, earlier in this text, hang with, follow me here, okay? If you're tuning it out, tune back in just for a little bit here. You've got to get this part, okay? Lazarus earlier said this, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. And then he says this, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So, if people are saying that 42 means they really didn't believe, what does 37 mean? He says they didn't believe. Then he says they did believe. So, so he knows the difference, you understand? So, we're going to take, I haven't read anybody in 37 that says, well, it says they didn't believe, but I think they did. I haven't read one person say that. But you get to verse 42, and oh my word, it's like the text doesn't mean anything anymore. Talk about confusion. He says later, they could not believe. They didn't believe, they couldn't believe, and then he throws this in. Oh, a bunch of them did though. So he's kind of making a contrast there. To say they believe when they didn't, and to say they, you know, he says they believe, and they say, they, well, they really didn't. That violates the law of logic. God is logical. He doesn't write stuff that's nonsense. Well, they believe, but they didn't. No, if they believe, if he, God says that, they did. One of the laws of logic is the law of non-contradiction. A cannot be both A and not A at the same time in the same sense. You understand that? If it's A, it's A. It's not B. Okay? The law of non-contradiction says that a statement such as it's raining can't be both true and false at the same time in the same sense. Now, it could be raining in Missouri and not in Arizona, but the principle says it cannot be raining and not raining at the same time in the same place. And I think we all understand that. You stand outside and say, oh, it's raining, and you look, the sun's out, and there's not a drop, and you're like, what is wrong with you? Well, it's not raining means it's raining. This language doesn't make much sense then. So these authorities cannot be believing and not believing. And since the Scripture says they believed, I'm going with that. Okay? You can make your own decision. But I'm going to go with what the Scriptures say. The words believe, believing, and believed are used 85 times in this Gospel. And they clearly refer to those who have trusted Christ. There's no use of believed. in Lazarus is writing so people would believe. And then he's telling us along the way who did and who didn't. And he's not confused. And he doesn't use it in a sense that you know means they didn't really believe when he said they did. Look at uh, John 1.12. You know, he just said that in, in verse 11 that he came to his own and that they didn't believe him. They didn't receive him. But he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right. See, if you believe, look what happens. You get the right to become a son of God. Look at verse uh, 39 of chapter 7. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, watch, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Those who believe in him get the Spirit. They receive the Spirit of God. Those who don't believe, they don't get the Spirit. So they receive eternal life. Salvation is all about believing. And listen, nothing but believing. But today the Gospel has been perverted. The Gospel has been distorted. The Gospel has been turned into a works righteousness system. And, you know, although most of us would say, well, I think the Catholic Church is wrong. We're right along with them in what they believe because they believe Christ died on the cross for your sins. But, it wasn't quite enough. You have to add to that if you expect to get to heaven. In other words, he got you 75% there. He covered most of your stuff. you got to take care of the... That's terrifying to me. If he, if he didn't pay at all, guess what? We're damned. We're done. Now, the Lordship view says these authorities can't be saved. They can't be saved. Why can't they be saved? Why do they say they can't be saved? It says they didn't confess them and they loved the glory of man. But, again, listen, the Scripture says they believe. So who are you going to believe? The Bible or men? See, Lordship theology causes people to doubt the testimony of Scripture. Faith is believing and believing alone makes you a Christian. They didn't believe, he says. Then he says others did believe. So he knows the difference. Now, Let's take this, break this down a little bit. I want you to notice the contrast here. The word nevertheless here is from two Greek words, hamos and mindi, which function as a strong adversative. The Lexham Bible translates this way, yet despite that, even many of the rulers believed in him. See, the majority of Jews could not believe. Verse 37 says, they were blinded. And then he says this, yet despite that, Many even of the authorities believed in Him. So he's contrasting these authorities who believe with those who didn't believe. And to say he's making a contrast when they... I'm saying they believe, but they really didn't. Then there's no contrast at all. There's no difference at all. When, when he says they didn't believe, he means the same thing as they did believe. So if that's not going to turn you upside down, you're not thinking at all, alright? The word authorities here is archon, which most likely indicates members of the Sanhedrin. He's shocked. The people are rejecting him in masses, but even among all those who reject him, nevertheless, some believe. Can you think of any people who did believe from the authorities, from the Sanhedrin? Nicodemus? Who else? Joseph of Arimathea? He was a member of the... These guys, these members of the Sanhedrin believed. They were believers, but it says here, many of these authorities believe. Now, let me say this again. Because <laughs> it's important. How can many, even of the authorities, believed in Him mean the same thing as they didn't believe in Him? How do we get that? How can Lazarus say that some believed and some did not believe and really mean none believed? That's what they're saying to me. Lazarus didn't mean... None of them believed, but he said some did and some didn't. What is it that causes people to think these authorities were not real Christians? Listen to me. It's their works. It's their works. Look at the rest of the verse. But, they believe but, 
For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Wow, that doesn't sound too good. Because these new believers feared the Pharisees and therefore wouldn't confess Christ, people say they didn't believe. Even though the text says they did. And the text could have said something else. Some of these leaders pretended to follow Him. But it doesn't add any of that stuff. Lazarus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote many even of the authorities believed in him. And then he wrote, but for fear of the Pharisees, they wouldn't have confessed him. He's telling us that these men are believers, even though they didn't do what you would expect a believer to do. And we're going to look at the second half of this because you know many people say, well, if you don't confess Christ, you can't be a Christian. We're going to look at that rest of that next time because I just can't fit it all in here. All right, And we'll look at verse 43 and hopefully we'll end the passage next week. So many think that these authorities are not real Christians because they lacked works. Listen, please listen. You don't get to heaven by what you do. You go to heaven because you believe in Yeshua. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That was the cry of the Reformation. Sola fide. Faith alone. It's not about your... Yeah, we all should be saying praise the Lord because if our works play a part in this, we're all damned. And listen, here's the scary thing. When you think your works are good enough to get you somewhere, you got a problem with pride. You are ate up and you think you are performing to your max. And you know what happens? You become a Pharisee. Okay? Here's what happens in our life. We have a strong desire to honor God. And so we do certain things and we feel more spiritual by them. All right. We read for so long. We pray for us. We, we, you know, we do certain things, whatever it be. Everybody's got different things, you know. You don't go to movies, you know, then you're really spiritual. We list these spiritual things and then we're doing them. So we feel, mm. then John's not doing them. John's not doing what I do. So what's my initial response? John's not right with God. And see, I have just become a Pharisee. And I, I come by it honestly. I want to honor God. But see, John's not doing what I do. And if what I do is right, John's wrong. And so now I've become a Pharisee. Now I'm sitting in judgment on John. He says he believes. But <laughs> I don't think he's right. I mean, look at the stuff he does. You know, it just can't. And, and we've all we become Pharisees. And we're judging everybody. And people say, well, are we supposed to be fruit inspectors? No. When the Bible in Matthew 12 talks about examining by their fruits, the fruits he's talking about is what they say. What they are teaching. That's how we judge. By the truth of the Word. This is what they believe. I'm not, please, I'm not saying everybody says they believe is a believer. But I'm saying if the Bible says you're a believer, then guess what? You're good. Uh, if works you know, play any part in this gospel, you've just destroyed the gospel. You've destroyed it. Because you can't add, you can't just do a little part. Because you're saying, when you say, I'm adding, what Christ did is not enough. Let me share with you a quote from my favorite 
Bible scholar, Michael Heiser. And by the way, Heiser's going to be speaking at our conference this year. So I'm really honored and excited to have him there. All right. This is from his podcast called, his podcast is called The Naked Bible Podcast. And it's called that because he says it is the Bible stripped of denominationalism. In other words, we're teaching just the Bible. We're not worrying about all the traditions and everything else. But in his podcast on Hebrews 3, just a couple weeks ago, he said this. He says, you have got to stop substituting faith in the gospel and in what happened on the cross with your performance. you got to stop. He says, it's an easy trap to fall into. It's not I, 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 I'm doing this and avoiding that. Enough. Am I, am I doing enough? Am I, am I staying away from this bad stuff? He says, this is not the gospel. And this is the concern of the writer of Hebrews. He doesn't want them to abandon their confidence. Confidence in what? Their performance? No. Confidence in what God, God will do what He said He will do. If you believe, you will be part of my family. If you believe, you will have eternal life. You either believe that or you don't. Listen, when Lazarus says that someone believes, that is what he means. Belief in Christ, in His name, is what saves us. People, let me beg you, as Bereans, to believe the Bible, not what men say about the Bible. All right? The Bible is the inspired Word of God. What men say is not. Okay? It is not. And, you know, we need teachers, and teachers can be helpful, but listen, you've got to examine, you've got to go behind, you've got to follow up and find out if people, what they're saying is true. Is it right? It's too easy to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think they did believe either. But you've got to understand what you're questioning. You're questioning the inspired text of the Word of God to believe some man. All right, I got to get off my soapbox. Um, let's pray. This is important. This to me, this is the heart of the gospel. The gospel is about faith. When you add anything to it, you've just destroyed the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for all the good teachers out there and scholars and commentators who who labor to teach the truth, Lord, but Father, none of us are perfect. None of us are right about everything. And I pray, Lord, that we would be as Bereans, that we would examine what we hear from everybody. We'd search the text of the Word of God to see, is it true, is it right, is it what the Scriptures are saying? Give us a heart, Lord, to know and follow the truth. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen. All right. My phone is... I'm getting, I'm getting texts, okay? And, I, and it doesn't surprise me, okay? This subject always brings up stuff. Okay. <laughs> Any questions <laughs> on what we covered? All right, here, here is a question every time it comes up. You want to guess what it is? You want to guess what text people are wanting to know about? James 2, Right? Anytime you talk about this, you know, James 2 comes up. Um, even the demons believe and tremble. 
Isn't this where most get their concept that there's a belief that doesn't save? Yeah, I would agree with you on that, Mike. This Mike Sullivan wrote this. You know, yeah, I agree. That's where many people get that idea. And I think it comes from a misunderstanding of the text of James 2. You've got to understand what James is talking about. You've got to understand the salvation that James is talking about there. And I really don't have time to go into it. I've got two messages on the Internet that I dealt with James 2 because it's important to understand, you know, because that is a confusing text. But here's the thing. The analogy of faith is one of the principles of biblical interpretation. Or the Scripture interprets Scripture. Sometimes we find a Scripture that sounds like it contradicts here. Does the Bible ever contradict itself? No. So we've got to work from the clear to the complex. And we've got to take the whole of Scripture and find out what it is saying. And let me tell you something. You go through Scripture after Scripture, you're going to find that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Paul fights against those who want to add anything. You know, he says they're preaching another gospel. They need to be damned because they're teaching another gospel, a gospel of works. So you're adding things to faith. Now again, I'm saying we don't know who believes and who doesn't believe. We go by their testimony. That's all we can do. If someone tells me they're a Christian, I go over the gospel with them. This is the gospel. You believe? Yes, I believe that. If they say they believe it, I accept their word because why am I going to call them a liar? Well, you say, well, they did this or that. Okay. Does that make them not a Christian? Do works cancel out your faith in Christ? Do you, learn, do you lose by works what you gain by faith? Ah, yeah, I hope not too. That's the thing, man. We, we better hope not. Or we're all in trouble. But there's such a propensity within man to feel like I've earned this. I was good. I did this and God owes me. God owes you nothing but damnation. Anything you get is pure grace. You're not going to earn anything, okay? Because anything you do, you do by the grace of God, not by, you know, you're just a super person, all right? We've got to understand, this is, people, this is the heart of the gospel. And this is a problem. You ask most Christians, try this. Go up to them and, you know, you know someone's a Christian. All right, are, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you something. If you were to stand before God right now and God says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell them? That answer is so telling because they'll say, well, I've done this. I tried, my, I tried or I did, I did. They'll add, unless the only answer that's right, why should he let me into heaven? Because Christ, I've trusted Christ who paid my sin debt in full. That's the only right answer. Anything else is wrong. I did, I tried, I joined, I, I prayed, I, you know, it's all you. But that'll, I'll tell you, most people are going to tell you about their works. And when you preach the gospel of grace, ah, oh, people, that's, that's bad. You got to do something. You got to work your way there. No, you don't. What? Yeah. Who's a believe that report? Okay, like I said, next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at the rest of this text, we're going to talk about confession because in Romans 10, Paul talked about it. You know, if you believe with your heart that God raised and confess with your mouth, and you shall, you know, so we're going to look at that text because it's confess. You have to do something. Most people, again, most Christians, yes, you have to do something. There's performance involved. When you hear that from anybody, you better throw dust in the air and tear your clothes and scream. Okay, because that's blasphemy. That's saying, Christ, you just didn't cut it. I appreciate the help you gave me, but it's not enough. I got to help out. 
God help us. Gary? <laughs> I would, uh, I would, you know, if they're listening, I would try to talk to. But you know, most people, you know, have their view of you got to do certain things. It's just you, you got to do it. You know, if you're if you're really a Christian, you will do this. But let's take up a list. If you're really a Christian, you will do what? You know how many different answers you would get. You know how many different answers you would get depending on people's background. Some would say, some would say you don't play cards. You don't go to movies. Okay? Listen, get this one, John. You don't have a beard. I went to a Baptist church that beards were wrong. You were not allowed to have a beard. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Yeshua had one. I mean, you you know, people will add all these things to the gospel, and it's just it's sad, people. It's really sad. Okay? Grace is hard for people to accept. It's just hard. But I'm telling you, the only way you're going to get to heaven is by the pure grace of God. You're not doing anything. You're not adding a bit. Okay? Now let me tell you what. Let me make the, I always have to add qualifiers here. You should, as a Christian, be living a holy, righteous life. That doesn't add anything to your salvation, but you ought to do that out of gratitude. In, in response to what God... When you really understand the grace of God and understand what God has given you, your life should be poured out to Him as a sacrifice. But it has nothing to do with earning anything. You can't earn nothing. It's paid for. 